You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Uh, welcome to Sojourn. If you don't know me, my name is Marshall, one of the pastors here. It's my uh, joy and privilege to uh, speak from God's Word this morning, uh, Galatians chapter 4. Um, if you're a guest, I'd just like to reiterate the welcome that uh, Cole already gave you. We're really glad that you're here and glad that you would choose to spend uh, your Sunday morning with us. Uh, do hope and pray that uh, those things that we want to characterize us in terms of feeling like a family would be true for you. And so uh, please do not hesitate at all to uh, make yourself known or to ask any questions uh, that you might have. We'd love to, to serve you in whatever way is most helpful for you. So um, with that said, we'll, we'll jump right into Galatians. Uh, we've got, m- much like every week of this series so far, we have a, a whole lot of work to do and not so much time. And so um, let's kind of catch ourselves up to speed, right? Um, Paul uh, is writing this letter to the church in Galatia in order to do essentially two things, which which are really the two things that he's doing in all of the letters that he writes in the New Testament. He is defending and clarifying the gospel. So he's teaching the Galatians what it means to believe in who Jesus is and what he has done on their behalf, and he's teaching them then how to defend that belief, essentially how to protect that from the things that would, that would compromise it right, that would distort it is, is what he says in chapter 1 of Galatians. And so up to this point, this is essentially what we've seen, right? Paul, in the first two chapters, establishes his authority for the Galatians. He does this by essentially giving them three reasons to listen to him, right? And those three reasons were, number one, that, that God gave the gospel directly to him, Right, that he didn't receive it, that this wasn't something that he made up or conjured up in his own free time, but that he received it from the Lord, and that that was evident in the second reason that we should listen to him, by his own life story. Right, That Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians, became prosecuted for Christians, persecuted for Christians, right? That this miraculous change within Paul's own life, where he gave up all of his status and stature within the culture to follow this Jesus is, again, a compelling reason for why we should listen to him. But then finally, we come to realize that this gospel message that he received and that had changed his own life personally was also a message that the apostles, those who had walked with Jesus during his time on earth and had been commissioned by Jesus to be his representatives on the earth, affirmed the gospel that Paul preached. Right? And so Paul essentially says, here's three great reasons why you should listen to me. And starting in chapter 3, he begins to make his argument. Right? What is it that he wants people to hear in light of this authority that he's been given by God? And essentially he's speaking against the fa- a, 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 a false teaching that had begun to take root in Galatia. And at the heart of this false teaching was an attempt to make the Jewish law do something that it was never intended to do, that is, save people. And so he's pleading for people, he's pleading for the church in Galatia, essentially, to see the law rightly, to understand the law rightly in this world that Jesus has now entered into as the Son of God and has 
made people right before God through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And so today, Paul's going to continue that argument by explaining the situation in terms of what is, what is essentially an identity crisis that's happening among the Galatians. He contends that the Galatians have forgotten who they are in Christ. And so let's pray, and we'll look at the details of that. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, Lord, we are grateful to be gathered together. Lord, thank you for sustaining us this week. Lord, for bringing us to another Sunday, for bringing us, Lord, to a place where uh, we can belong. Because what is chief among us, what is our most distinct reality, what is most true about us, God, is that we are in Christ. Lord, that if we have called upon his name for salvation, then we have been joined to him. We've been united to him in such a way that his death is our death and that his resurrection is our resurrection and his sonship, his belonging to you is also our sonship, our belonging to you. And this is true of us regardless of whether we are male or female in the room, regardless of whether we are Jew or Gentile, regardless of whether we are slave or free, whether we are rich or poor, or any other distinction that we could imagine. And so God, we're grateful for that this morning, that there's a unity in the midst of our diversity. And Lord, we know that we couldn't make that happen on our own. We needed your spirit. And in the same way, we need your spirit to teach us and to grow us and to make us more like your son, Jesus. So we pray that your spirit would serve us through your word, that you would teach us, mold us, shape us into what you would have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump right in. Uh, Galatians, starting uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 3. This is what it, Paul says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And now, as we know, again, from the introductory portions of Galatians, essentially, Paul is speaking to two distinct groups of people. He's speaking to the majority Jewish Christians, right? People who had converted from Judaism to Christianity um, through the work of Jesus and Gentiles to whom now the kingdom of God had been opened through Jesus, right? So you have two distinct cultural uh, realities. You have two distinct cultural backgrounds that are coming together in light of Jesus. And here in our text, in verses 1 through 11, he's going to speak directly to both of them. And he begins by speaking to the Jews. And this is what he says. He says that an heir, meaning one who has an inheritance from their father, is no different from a slave. How is that? Well, they're no different from a slave in that they do not have their own agency. They don't have their own freedom. And they won't have their own agency and they won't have their own freedom until, what Paul says, is the date set by their father. Now, in Roman law, the heir was until he came of age, 
under the control of a, of a tutor or a guardian that was nominated by his father. And so again, this was to ensure that this heir would grow up to, into everything that the family was known for being so that he would be trained up in the way that he should go, essentially. Those words should sound somewhat familiar. And so Paul takes this analogy of a father and son, a, a father and his heir, and the means by which that heir would be trained up to run the household for his father, and he expands it. He expands it to all of the Jews. And that's why he uses this word, this word we, in verse 3. In the same way, we also, meaning Paul and his fellow Jews, when they were children, were enslaved. And so what Paul is doing is he's using this institution within the culture of guardianship, of tutorship, to give them a picture of their spiritual experience. When the Jews were in their religious infancy, he says they were enslaved under the elementary principles of the world, which for the Jews includes this law that had been given to them by Moses. Right? As we said last week, this, this law imprisoned them, that it, it kept them, it restrained them from their own sin. And so Paul continues again this idea by saying that these principles generally and the law specifically for the Jews acted as a, as a guardian over them, as a manager, as, as something that would lead them into maturity, that would guide and guard them as they grew up. Now this word translated here as elementary principles is a little tricky, um, but I think it helps us, again, understand the, the, the metaphor that, that Paul is giving us here. You see, this word, if we were to try to translate it more directly, is essentially means something that's placed side by side in a row. In, in Greek literature, it's often used to describe the letters of the alphabet. And so essentially what, what Paul is saying is that like the letters of the alphabet are elements from which words and sentences are made, the, the law and these elementary principles of the world are the building blocks from which we will come to understand the fullness of what God is doing in the world. And so like the alphabet is the first thing that we learn in the same way for the Jews. The law was the first lesson that they learned, but it was not meant to be their final lesson, nor was it a comprehensive one. It was guiding them to maturity until the date set by their father. And so while the law was necessary, foundational even, it was not complete. It was leading them to their coming freedom, not securing it. And so Paul says in verse 5, I'm sorry, in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption 
as sons. That's what Paul says in verse 4, when the fullness of time has come or had come. And if we read that in terms of the analogy that is in verses 1 through 3, we can read that this way. When the date set by the Father had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. And so God sends forth His Son, a Son who is born of woman, who is born under the law. Why? Explicitly, to redeem those who were under the law, to set them free from their guardianship. And so how does he do this? And Paul, Paul explains this fairly quickly. Jesus, by being born of a Jewish mother, was born a Jew. And thus he was born under this law. And so essentially what Paul is saying is that Jesus entered into what chapter 3 calls the prison house of the law. That he entered into their prison, he entered into this place in which the Jews were restrained, or in this analogy, were guarded, so as to set them free. When Paul speaks here of Christ having been born under the law, he bears in mind what he already said in chapter 3, that he was born not only under the law, but that he was born under the curse which the law brings. And so what Paul is saying in, in, in some total, really, from the beginning of chapter 3 all the way up until now, is that Jesus being born under the law involves his voluntary taking on himself the curse which others, by their failure to fulfill it, had incurred. This is how a, a theologian by the name of James Denny summarizes, essentially, all of chapter 3 in this beginning of of chapter 4. He says that Jesus not only became man bound to obedience under the law, but he became curse for us. He made our doom his own. He took on him not only the calling of a man, but our responsibility as sinful men. It is in this that his work as our Redeemer lies. For it is in this that the measure, or rather, the immensity of God's love is seen. And so what Paul says to the Jewish Christian in Galatia is that freedom from the guardian, freedom from slavery, freedom from prison, these different analogies that he's used in chapters 3 and 4, that freedom comes through Christ, not through their ability to uphold that law. And so although the law played a role in leading them to this moment of maturity in salvation history, this moment where Jesus is revealed, the means by which our freedom is given from the law, that it is not the law that sets us free, but rather Christ. And so again, what we see here is an elevation of the law, an understanding of the law that it's important, that it matters, that it means something, and yet that it is not ultimate that it is not what sets us free, that it is not what has loosed us from that prison. And so he goes on to say this in verse 6. 
And you'll notice that there's a shift in language here from the we to the you. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so while Paul began this section talking specifically to the Jewish Christians in Galatia, he broadens his thinking in this moment. In verses 6 and 7, and as, as it was said in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 3, he makes it clear that the beneficiaries of this work of Jesus, this setting free of Jesus, are not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Again, that's why he moves from using the word we to the word you, or in Texan, y'all. The Gentiles, although not directly under the law, were also enslaved. And he's going to explain how in the next few verses. This is what verse 8 says. Formerly, again, he's speaking to the Gentile Christians now, those who had converted from paganism. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? There's that word again. Whose slaves you want to be once more. And so what does Paul say? It's not only the Jew that is enslaved under the law, if they continue to keep it in order to earn God's favor, but it's also the Gentile who is enslaved if they live as though something else is God other than the God, this God. And so he says that the Gentiles were enslaved by gods who were by nature not gods, that they had made gods of things that could never and would never live up to that title. And this could be said of the actual pagan gods of Rome, right? Jupiter, Mars, Apollo, Dionysus. But it could also be said of the implicit cultural gods in Rome, the same gods that so many people in our culture still wrestle with today, the gods of money, the gods of sex, the god of, god of power, the god of popular opinion, and more. And Paul says of them, though, that now, right, in verse 9, now that they have come to know God, rather, they are, they are known by Him. That they've been, as we said last week, incorporated into Christ. That they've been so united to Him that what used to make them different no longer really matters in the grand scheme of things. That what is chief among them, that what is their primary identity is that they are in Him. And so they not only know God because of Jesus, but they are known by God because of Jesus. As verse, verses 6 and 7 said, they, they've been adopted along with the Jews, that they're sons and daughters along with the Jews, and that they are heirs of God's kingdom. That they are no longer slaves, but they are sons And so it's in light of that new reality 
that Paul asks that question in the latter half of verse 9. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Having known God, and better yet, having been known by Him, how can you turn back? And I want to zoom in on that, that term that he uses twice in this, in this passage. This idea of the elementary principles of the world. And yet what, what I think we can agree upon is that the Jews were enslaved in a way that was much different from the Gentiles. Right? And that the Jews were enslaved by God's law and the Gentiles were enslaved by God's who by their nature, were not gods. And so why would Paul, again, use the same term to describe two seemingly very different things? Here's what Paul's getting at. Although the Galatians were specifically enslaved to something other than the law, these Gentile Christians... Although they were specifically enslaved to something other than the law, they were enslaved to the same thing generally, these elementary principles, in that both the Jewish law and Roman paganism were powerless to save them. They were weak and worthless when it came to providing the salvation that every human, whether Jew or Greek, whether a law keeper or a law breaker, needs. And so what we, should, what we should begin to see as we read this is that legalism is legalism. Whether it is strict adherence to the Mosaic law or strict adherence to the fashionable laws of the time that we live in. that they're really no different. And yet here's where it gets tricky. Because the Gentile Christians are not going back to Jupiter, Apollo, Mars, Dionysus. They're turning to the Jewish law for their hope. And so Paul isn't warning them about Jupiter, Mars, and Apollo. That's not what they're struggling with. They're struggling with the temptation to make the Jewish law ultimate. And so Paul says they're the same thing. And so he continues in verse 10 and he says, You observe days and months and years and seasons. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And so what Paul says in his sort of summary statement of this portion of, of chapter 4 is that it doesn't matter whether it's the days, months, seasons, and years of the Jewish ceremonial calendar or those of the pagan gods of Rome, both of them would lead them back to a slavery that they had already escaped that was utterly inconsistent with their identity, that if they were sons, they could not also be slaves. And so, in returning to these things, in returning to the elementary principles of the world, they would be slaves and not sons. 
And so, as I said in the beginning, what we have here, what, what is essentially happening in Galatia is an identity crisis. Are we slaves or are we sons? And Paul makes it clear in this passage, at least about these Galatian Christians, that if they are in Christ, they are sons. And that by virtue of being sons, they are also heirs. And that's where I want to come to our conclusion this morning, because it was also at the end of chapter 3. Let me just recall that for us. Right? In verse 27 of chapter 3, Paul says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so they're not slaves, in fact, they're sons, and if they're sons, then they are heirs, and yet their behavior, their dependence upon the law, is pointing to the opposite reality. And so Paul rightfully and strongly encourages them to remember who they are, that they're heirs. And this is why this is where I want to end. I think it's important for us to understand what it means for us to be heirs. Because if in Christ we're made sons, and if in Christ we're not only made sons, but we're made heirs, Paul is arguing that that reality for us should be compelling enough that we would let go of our law-keeping or our law-breaking. That we would let go and that we would enjoy, that we would rest in and that we would find strength in and freedom in this new identity, this new reality that we are heirs. So what does it mean to be an heir? Well, let's go back to verse 1 where Paul says this, right? In verse 29 of chapter 3, he said that if we are Christ's, then we're Abraham's offspring, we're heirs according to the promise. And he explains what that means in verse 1, verse one when he says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, catch this, though... He is the owner of everything. Brothers and sisters, to be an heir is to be the owner of everything. It is to own everything that belongs to our Father. And you know what belongs to our Father? Everything. Everything. And you see what so often happens, whether it's in our law-keeping or in our law-breaking, the, the, what often compels us to either one of those, what often compels us either to try to keep the law or to try to break the law is often this perceived sense of lack. Right? If I'm not happy, it's because I'm not having enough sex with the people that I want to have sex with. And so I'm going to compromise. If I'm not happy, it's because I'm not doing the things that God wants me to do. And so he's angry with me and he's going to keep making bad things happen to me until I keep the law as well as he would want me to. 
So whether it's a perceived sense of lack of something that we want to own and we're willing to compromise to get it, or whether it's something that we hope to own and we feel like we need to earn, both of those come from the same place. This perceived sense of lack. And yet, if we are in Christ, then we are sons. And if we are sons, then we are heirs. And to be an heir is to own everything that our Father owns. And our Father, who is Lord of the universe, who is the God of all creation, owns all things. And so you don't lack acceptance, brother and sister. You don't lack power. You don't lack control. It is yours in Christ, it is yours in that it is exercised by your loving Father who will bring you to maturity through the guardianship of His Son and His Spirit. We own the love of God, so we don't lack love. We own the peace of God, so we don't lack peace. We own the kingdom of God, so we don't lack a dwelling place. Right? Jesus himself said, the Son of God, I have no place to rest my head. Foxes have holes, right? But the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. And Jesus can say that knowing that, again, in his Father, he owns everything. And this is why Paul is so incredulous in this letter. This is why he's so sort of upset, why you can feel his visceral disdain for this situation. Because what the Galatians have done is essentially traded in that reality. He says, look, if you're, if you're in Christ, then you're a son. If you're a son, then you're an heir. If you're an heir, you own everything that your father owns. And he says, look, but if you return, if you go back to either your law keeping or your law breaking, then you return to slavery. And you know what is characteristic of a slave? A slave owns nothing. In fact, not only does a slave not own anything, they are themselves owned And so there's this huge disparity between what Jesus came to do and accomplish and the way that the believers in Jesus are living in Galatia. They're living like slaves. They're living like they own nothing. In fact, they live in such a way that they themselves are owned. And Paul says that's absurd. If you're in Christ, you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. That's why he asks in verse 9, how could you turn back? They're weak, these weak and worthless things. How could you turn back? Who in their right mind would want to go from owning everything to owning nothing? In fact, being themselves owned. Why would we willingly turn back to slavery? And this is what's so dangerous, brothers and sisters, about the elementary principles of the world. Is that they promise us everything and they can give us nothing. In fact, not only do they give us nothing, but they end up taking from us. 
which that to me is, is, is even more of a foolish trade. Not only am I not gaining anything, I'm being robbed. I'm being taken from. So much so that I will lose not only those things that belong to me in Christ, but I will lose my very freedom. And how ironic is that? How ironic is that? Because you, you see, our culture says that we are free to the same degree that we shed ourselves of God or any trappings of religion. That the further we remove God, the more free we become. That in that moment, we're free to express ourselves however we want. We're free to be whatever we want to be. And Paul argues here that in fact, that is to walk further and further into slavery. That the less we consider God and the less that we understand His law rightly, the more enslaved we become to what is basest in us. Either the desire to be morally perfect and thus superior to others or to be morally unbound and thus free to utterly disregard others. And Paul says to us this morning that we're set free. And we're not set free as a slave to fend for ourselves, but we're set free as sons with new freedom that operates within this new family reality. And so what I want to say to us as we conclude is this. The legalist and the libertine are the same. Libertine meaning like pagan. They're the same. They're both enslaved. And so this is what's so ironic in the conversation in our culture, right? Because the legalist points to the pagan, the libertine, and he says, you are enslaved to your passions. Not me. But you are enslaved to your passions. You have no self-control. You're utterly undisciplined. While the pagan points to the legalist and says you're enslaved to your fake morality that has been imposed on you by a figment of your imagination. And so I'm the, I'm the righteous one here. I've shed myself from, from that slavery. And essentially what Paul says in this portion of Galatians is, hey, pot, meat kettle. They're both enslaved because it is a sin to live like you don't need God. Whether you don't need God as a law keeper because you're good enough or whether you don't need God because you're a law breaker and you want to do whatever you want. Both lead to the same place. Both of those people are enslaved. Both of those people are in need of a freedom that only Jesus can provide. And brothers and sisters, Let's be honest, even those of us who are in Christ this morning struggle with both sides of that spectrum. There are areas which we are happy to law break in, and there are areas of our lives that we are proud to say we are law keepers in. And Paul is warning us this morning, 
that to find comfort in either one of those is to find comfort in being enslaved. It is to return to the prison house and to willingly lock yourself in it. And so Jesus this morning offers to us freedom, true freedom, right? Listen to him speak. This is Jesus himself speaking to us in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so, brothers and sisters, the good news this morning for us, whether we are pagans or whether we are legalists, is that Jesus died as one under the law, but rose as one set free from the law to show us that he has the power to set us free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so this changes the whole nature of obedience for the Christian. We don't just obey God because we're grateful to Him for Jesus. We obey God because we're new creatures in Jesus. But that's for another sermon. And so we'll continue next week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word, Lord, that cautions us, that reminds us, Father, that there is no hope to be found in the elementary principles of the world. There is no hope to be found in our law breaking, nor is there hope to be found in our law keeping. But Lord, there is great hope to be found in the fact that in your sovereign timing, you sent your son to be born of woman, born under the law in order to redeem us so that we might be adopted as sons. And by virtue of our sonship, we might be heirs to everything that you own. And that you have sent your spirit into our hearts. And because we have this seal of our salvation, we can cry out to you with the same title that your son Jesus used for you. Abba, Father. Daddy. And so Lord, I, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would loose chains. Pray that you would loose chains in my own life, God, where I am tempted to strap on the chains of legalism. Lord, where I am tempted to strap on the chains of what our culture says will make me most happy. And Lord, that you would remind us that because we are in Christ, we are yours, and because we are yours, we are heirs of all things. And so we lack nothing. You have sustained us fully and perfectly in Jesus, and that is what we proclaim 
as we come to your table this morning. That we taste and we see that Jesus is good and we are full. And so, Lord, we are grateful to you. We're grateful to you for all good things. In the name of Jesus, amen.